6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, verse 9 through chapter 7. So last time we had the throne of God, didn't we? It's kind of fun. We're in Isaiah, in chapter 6. We used the first eight verses as a point of departure to explore the throne of God last time, but tonight we'll return to Isaiah to um, complete 6 and move into 7 and so on. Isaiah chapter 6, the throne of God took us down to verse 8, and I love verse 8, because if you recall when Jeremiah was asked for his ministry, he says, Lord, I'm too young, they'll never listen to me. When God asked Moses to uh, go back to Egypt, he gave him all kinds of excuses. I'm a, you know, a of slow tongue and so forth. <laughs> Not Isaiah. Isaiah raised his hand right up. God says, who shall I send? Who shall go for us? I love that us. It's a plural. The Trinity. And then said I, Isaiah, here am I, send me. And indeed he does. Verse 9 continues. And he said, as God said, go and tell this people, hear ye indeed, but understand not. And see ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat, make their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and be converted, and be healed. Wow. God's saying it's over. There is a point where they won't hear anymore. It's very clear in Scripture that God will only strive so long. Even God has its limits. And this people went to the limits. Now this, this idea is not unique here to Isaiah. In fact, it's quoted several places in the Scripture in the same spirit. As you recall, Matthew 13. I'm fond of pointing out Matthew 13 follows Matthew 12, and people think I'm being facetious. Matthew 12 is a major milestone in Christ's ministry. That's where the Pharisees attribute his power to Satan. That leads to, to what we call the unpardonable sin. And from Matthew 13 on, our Lord changes his style in his public appearances. From that point on, he never again speaks publicly except in parables. That may surprise you, because we've all been taught that parables are to illuminate. Well, that sounds pretty appealing, but let's turn to Matthew 13 and take a glimpse here, because there's some lessons here that are not just in the Old Testament. They apply to you and I. There's a point at which it's a, a little different ballgame. In Matthew 13... Jesus describes seven parables. We call them the kingdom parables. And you know most of them. You probably know them all. First one is the sower in the four soils. And that's that he gives in the early part of the chapter and explains later in the chapter. No mystery about the four soils. Then he gives them the parable of the sower and the tares and the wheat. And that also is explained later in the chapter. We discover in the chapter, if you go through the chapter, there are some outside parables where he gives a parable. Then there's some inside briefings where he explains the parables. 
But in one of those inside briefings, down in verse 10, the disciples came and said unto him, Why speakest thou unto them in parables? And he answered and said unto them, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. Really? For whosoever hath to him shall be given, and he shall have more abundance. But whosoever hath not from him shall be taken away even that which he hath. I know we've all suspected that for some time when it comes to money, right? <laughs> those that have gets and those that haven't lose what little they got, right? Well, you know what I'm talking about there. Jesus, of course, is not talking about that. He's talking about the Spirit. He's talking about insight. He's talking about understanding the Word. Verse 13, Therefore speak I to them in parables, because they seeing see not, and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which hath by hearing ye shall hear and shall not understand, and seeing ye shall see and not perceive. For this people's heart has become gross, their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes have closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and should understand with their heart, and should be converted, that I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. And I hope that applies to you and I. Huh? For verily I say unto you, many prophets and righteous men have desired to see those things which ye see, and have not seen them. And to hear those things which ye hear, and have not heard them. Then he goes on to explain one of the parables. Incidentally, when you get to verse 34, another one of these brief insights, uh, all these things spoke Jesus unto the multitude in parables, and without a parable spoke he not unto them. In other words, he not only started speaking parables, he confined his public presentations to parables, that it might be fulfilled by the prophet. Which is spoken by the prophet, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. There is an important insight. The things in Matthew 13 that he's describing in those parables, those seven parables, are things which are hidden since the foundation of the world, which is another way of saying they do not appear in the Old Testament. Matthew 13 deals with subject matter that's not in the Old Testament. Paul tells us in Ephesians 3 what that is. What is there in the plan of God that was hidden from the Old Testament prophets? The church, exactly. And it's pretty fascinating. One of the exercises I'll mention, it's maybe review for most of you. If you study the seven letters of seven churches, the book of Revelation, you discover that those seven letters have many applications. There are personal applications, there's church applications, but there's also prophetic ones. Those seven letters to seven churches lay out all of church history. If those letters were in any other order, it wouldn't be true. But the seven letters, seven churches, have at least four levels of meaning. They're historical, they're personal, they're admonitory to the church in general, and they're also prophetic. What's interesting is if you lay out the seven letters of seven churches, and if you lay out the seven kingdom parables of Matthew 13, you'll discover some amazing parallelisms. The uh, woman in the leaven is a good example. Fourth parable, fourth letter is the letter to Thyatira, which features the woman Jezebel and the introduction of false doctrine and so on. I won't review it again tonight. You can get the tapes on either Matthew 13 and or Revelation 2 and 3, and it covers that kind of material. But in that case, it shouldn't surprise us because the seven letters in Revelation 2 and 3 are written by the same guy who gave the seven parables, the name of Jesus Christ. So it shouldn't surprise us that they have a homogeneity of architecture. Same pattern, same style, different idioms, but same content. What may surprise us more is that Paul wrote 13 letters that he signed. I'll skip the Hebrews issue for the moment. Of those 13 letters, three are doubles. First and Second Timothy, First and Second Corinthians, First and Second Thessalonians, 
not in that order, which means if, if you wrote uh, 13 epistles, three or doubles, how many addressees were there? Three from 13 leave 10, right? But three of those are pastors, right? That means Paul wrote seven churches. And one of the fascinating things you'll discover if you study those letters carefully, those seven churches fit the model of the seven churches in Revelation and the seven kingdom parables in some surprising ways. And I'll just leave that with you to explore on your own because we've got plenty of other material to cover tonight. But uh, if nothing else, it'll get you to dust off the old notes from Matthew 13 and Revelation 2 and 3. Okay, so here, these are all in effect derivative of verses 9 and 10, but we'll move on. One thing I should mention, the passage we're reading, of course, deals with Isaiah's commission. In the first verse, he says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I also saw the Lord. So this is all either happening then or a throwback. In any case, it happens the year that Uzziah died. A couple of things I'd like to mention about Uzziah's death that's kind of interesting because it seems to give rise to a whole new era. Uzziah died in the 14th Jubilee since Canaan. And that's always interesting because apparently Jesus started his ministry on the 29th Jubilee. The rabbis still argue about exactly when the Jubilee year is, but that means we're moving into the 70th Jubilee. So I thought I'd throw that out to mull it over. All those things are prophetic. Is the 70th Jubilee prophetic? I sure think so. It's also interesting that Isaiah sees God's glory in the first eight verses that we talked about. What's interesting, that glory was about to depart from the temple and never to return nationally. And also something else happened the year that Uzziah died. There was a city founded on the banks of the Tiber by the name of Rome that would rise to an empire long after the Babylonians and Persians and the Greeks. It would become the world empire. It would be the empire that would uh, end up creating the diaspora that uh, we're all familiar with. We're at a very pivot point of history as we go through here. In verses 9 and 10, by the way, before I go any further, too, I might mention, we looked at Matthew 13, but you'll find other references for your notes that you can look at. Obviously, John 12 quotes this. We looked at that before, verses 39 through 41. That's the three verses that demonstrate to you from the Scripture that there are no two Isaiahs. There's one Isaiah that wrote the entire book. Acts 28, verses 25 through 27 also quotes this verse. And if you're doing that kind of a study, you can also pick up this whole idea that God is not through with Israel. Because that's exactly what Isaiah is going to bring up here in verse 13. But for your notion, but Acts 15, verses 13 through 18, and Amos 9, verses 11 through 12. But we're down to verse 11. Then Isaiah says, uh, Then said I, Lord, how long? And he answered, Until the cities be wasted without inhabitant, and the houses without men, and the land be utterly desolate. And the Lord have removed men far away, and there be a great forsaking in the midst of the land. But yet in it shall be a tenth, or more precisely, a remnant. And it shall return and and shall be eaten as a tell tree and as an oak whose substance is in them when they shall cast their leaves. So the holy seed shall be, it says the substance of it, the term actually is the stump of it. And out of the stump comes a branch. Stump is an allusion to the root of Jesse, out of which will come a netzer, or a tzemek, if you will. Either way, a branch. And we'll talk a little bit more about a tzemek here in a minute. The main idea here, though, I'd like to just underscore is that God indicates that despite the whole tone of the passage has been judgment. Judgment on Judah and and Jerusalem. But notice that God does not disown them. He does not cast them away. They'll go through a period of judgment, yes. 
but he is not through with Israel. Evidence, Exodus 32. You look at that at your leisure, verses 9 through 14. Acts 15, the famous council in Jerusalem deals with that. I mentioned that. And uh, the Amos passage, we mentioned that. Okay, that brings us to chapter 7. Chapter 7 is kind of a fun chapter. There's some very profound things in it, and there's some very trivial things in it that I want to share with you anyway. (laughs) And yet it's in the wrong order. The trivial stuff will come first, but we'll jump into that to start with. Chapter 7, verse 1. It came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, the king of Judah. Now, by the way, Uzziah has died. Jotham is next, but briefly. No prophecies during Jotham's reign, but it's not very long. And Uzziah didn't do too badly. Jotham apparently didn't do badly. Ahaz is an utter disaster. In any case, in the days of Ahaz, who's the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, the king of Judah, then Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, king of Israel, went up toward Jerusalem to war against it, but could not prevail against it. The next uh, chunk of this chapter is immersed deeply in the politics of that period. And I'm not going to weary you with a lot of excessive detail, but you do need to understand that the enemies of Judah, bear in mind after Solomon, it was a civil war. We have the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. And while I'm dealing with that, it keeps coming up all the time. You keep running into people who like to sell you the idea that there's a lost ten tribes. Except if you look in uh, Second Chronicles, you'll discover when they did divide, the faithful of all the tribes moved south because it was a better regime. The unfaithful, the idolaters, moved north. We speak of the northern kingdom as the house of Israel and the southern kingdom as the house of Judah. The word Israel, we've got to be on our guard in the, in the, in the book of Isaiah because the word Israel is used several ways. Sometimes the word Israel is used for the whole nation. Jacob or Israel in, in the total national sense. And the term will occasionally be used that way. When Israel is used denotatively, not connotatively, that is narrowly, it refers to the northern kingdom, the house of Israel, as opposed to the house of Judah. You'll often see a presentation that's quite superficial, saying the northern kingdom is ten tribes, and the southern kingdom are the two tribes, Judah and Simeon. What muddies that up is, is that it didn't stay distinct after the Civil War. Those that were adhering to the living God moved south, because that was Jerusalem and all that. Those that were rebellious stayed north. Now, there are all kinds of legends and things that emerge out of the premise that, gee, there's ten nations, there are ten tribes that are lost. Because indeed, God in 722-23 uses the Assyrians to judge the northern kingdom. They're taken into slavery. About a century later, Babylon does the same thing to the southern kingdom, because by then they've declined pretty badly too, and God judges Judah for 70 years, the famous Babylonian captivity. A couple of things you need to keep in mind. Before Babylon conquered Judah... Who did they conquer? Assyria. Because in that century, Assyria's on the wane, Babylon's on the rise, they conquer Assyria. When they conquered Assyria, what did they inherit? They're slaves. Guess who? The northern kingdom, who are slaves, right? So when Nebuchadnezzar lays siege to Jerusalem and takes them captive, who does he commingle them with? They're old buddies from the north. No distinction there. 
And you can find, if you do a careful scriptural study, that the, the ten tribe idea is, is a fiction of certain viewpoints. But you'll also notice that Peter in his epistles writes his letters to whom? To the twelve tribes of Israel. And indeed, the prophets speak of the day when the, the, uh, there are several idioms used in the scripture where the kingdom, the, the nation will be reunited. And it's spoken of as two parts being brought back together. So certainly in the millennium, they are regathered and so forth. So don't get on a side trip of the lost ten tribes. But now getting back to this idiom, the idioms that we need to be sensitive to, the word Israel will usually mean in Isaiah the northern kingdom, the house of Israel. The dominant tribe up there was Ephraim, and the name Ephraim is also used connotatively, not to mean the tribe of Ephraim, but the whole house of Israel, the northern kingdom. So Ephraim is, a, is an idiom, if you will, for the northern house in contrast to the southern kingdom, which is always generally called Judah. Now, the northern kingdom was an enemy of the south. They had their civil war. There's a lot of bitter feeling, both religiously and also politically. They set up their kingdom in Samaria. The fall of the northern kingdom is often referred to as the fall of Samaria, their capital. Don't confuse that with Samaritans. That's another issue. But Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom formed an alliance with Syria, the traditional enemy, frankly, of both of them. But uh, the northern kingdom and Syria form an alliance to take over Judah. And that's what's involved here, you see. Because when Ahaz was the king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, the king of Israel. Ramalia is the king of Israel. Okay. His son, Pekah, and the king of Israel form an alliance to do what? To conquer Judah, Right. This is frustrating Ahaz, by the way, because he was trying to make an alliance with Syria against Israel. I mean, the whole thing is a political mess. <laughs> but anyway, these two guys, they form an alliance. They went up toward Jerusalem to war against it, but could not prevail against it. And it was told the house of David, saying, Syria is confederate with Ephraim. See, Ephraim is used as a synonym for the northern kingdom. Okay? When you see Ephraim, it's a little misleading. It's not just the tribe of Ephraim. The, used, the term is used connotatively to, to speak of the whole northern kingdom. And his heart was moved in the heart of the people as the trees of the forest are moved with the wind. Then said the Lord unto Isaiah, Go forth now to meet Ahaz, thou and Shearzebub, or something, Shash, anyway. I wonder how the kid grew up with a name like that, huh? Uh, all I do is butcher the transliteration of the Hebrew. But what the word means is a remnant shall return. Okay? That's easier to say than all this. But, but he, has a, he has two children, Isaiah does. And they're both named prophetically. It happens in this passage there is an encryption, a cipher. But anyway... Isaiah takes his son to Ahaz. Now see, Ahaz is frustrated because he's trying to form an alliance. It seems to be the office of the prophet to sell the boss an unpopular position. Anyway, uh, the Lord says to Isaiah, Go forth now to be Ahaz, thou and Shearjajab, thy son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool in the highway of the fuller's field. And say unto him, and by the way, what he was probably doing up there was fixing the water supply so it would supply Jerusalem but be denied to the enemies. It's a whole, it's a whole tactical thing you can get into, but it's peripheral to our interest here. Verse 4, And say unto him, Take heed and be quiet. Fear not, neither be faint-hearted for the two tails of these smoking firebrands. Isn't that eloquent? You know, it's one thing I enjoy about Isaiah. 
So often, you know, you read the prophets, and especially in the King James English, and it sounds so heavy, and, you know, it, 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 it plods through. Isaiah deals with pretty heavy stuff, but boy, his vocabulary and his use of expression. In the Hebrew, it's the highest Hebrew, but even, it even shows up in the English. It's just, it's just a rich form of expression. Here are these two kings that are against Ahaz. God says, tells Isaiah to him, Take heed and be quiet and fear not, neither be faint-hearted, for the two tails of these smoking firebrands, for the fierce anger of resin with Syria and of the son of Ramalia. Because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Ramalia have taken evil counsel against thee, saying, Let us go up against Judah and vex it and let us conquer it for ourselves and set a new king in the midst of it, even the son of Tabeel. And you're saying to yourself, who's Tabeel, right? Anyone know who Tabeel is? Well, let me uh, share something with you. I won't ask for a show of hands if there's anyone here from the intelligence community, either the CIA or the NSA or one of those alphabet soups that are back east that spend time in the, in the art of cryptography. But if you're a student of secret writing you may have encountered the fact that there are three traditional forms of letter transformation in the Hebrew, in literature. When I say a letter transformation, that's when we sort of have some secret code between us, a cipher, in which we substitute A for some letter, B for and so forth. You create a, a, a transposition and you, write a, and you spell your name not with your usual letters but with the transposed letters and your confederate knows the code and reverses it back. Do you follow me? That's called a, a very simple form of cipher called a transposition or transformation. It turns out that the Hebrew alphabet, which consists of all of consonants, by the way, there's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. The vowels are put by little, if you use vowels, often you don't find vowels, but if you do, they're little dots and lines underneath the letters. But the letters in the Hebrew alphabet are 22 consonants, essentially. I'm oversimplifying a little bit to get, across, get it across. We have 26 letters, they have 22. Now, if you take the Hebrew alphabet and go, what I'll use our vernacular from A to Z, if you make an agreement where instead of A, I'm going to use Z, if I, instead of the first letter, I'll use the last letter, instead of using the second letter, I'll use the second to the last letter, and so forth, consistently. In other words, I take the 22 letters and fold them back. Take the second half, fold it back, and, and slide it under the first half, and then I just agree to switch. You follow me? That's a form of encryption called atbash. It's called that because that's the way you pronounce the first and the last and the second to the second letter and the second to the last. So that's the, that's the label. It turns out in Jeremiah, I won't go into all this tonight because we're not in Jeremiah, but Jeremiah 25, 26 and Jeremiah 51, 41, that form of encryption called atbash appears in the ancient text. Also in Jeremiah 59, 1 it shows up. No big insight from this. The word shishak that you find in the English Bible, and many commentators assume from the context it's a suburb of Babylon. It turns out that shishak, if you use atbash, is an encryption of the word Babylon. And knowing that doesn't give you any great profound insight. So it's just some biblical trivia I'll throw out to you for uh, what purpose it may serve. In the other passages of Jeremiah, the same technique, uh, lab kamai, is used for kashinin, which means heart of my enemy is equivalent to Chaldean. And again, in the context, it doesn't give you any great insight. I'll come back to this in a minute. Why am I getting into all this? Because there's another form of Hebrew encryption that also is classical. That is called Albam. And that's where you take the 22 letters and you take the second half and just slip it under the first half. 
So instead, for the first letter, you use the 12th letter, the second, you know, in other words, you take the second 11, put it under the first 11, and that's your transposition pattern. That's called Albam, again, for the same reasons. And it turns out that when you do that in Isaiah chapter 7, the word tabil is Ramalia encrypted. Okay? Now, no profound insight here either, other than it reveals to you the strategy. Because had this northern confederacy succeeded, they would have put Ramalia in charge. Well, you could probably figure that out, that that's the king of the northern kingdom would be the one that would be uh, taking charge, not Syria. In other words, the agreement had been with Syria that if you help me get these guys down south, then the king of Israel would be in charge of the whole new nation, you know, the, the combined nation. It's academic because they don't succeed, do you follow me? Now, why do I bring this up? No big deal, except for the following. And you have to be kind of a nut like me, I guess, to get any interest in this. But, and by the way, there's a third form of encryption called Atba, and that's where you take the, the numerical value of the letters and always you transpose them so the sum is a constant. And I won't get into that. It's a little more complicated. It shows up, incidentally, in the Babylonian Talmud. And there it does make a, a moral point. But there are these three forms of encryption. Now, my point is, if you're a student of cryptography, this is a casual. It's, it's, it's a historical oddity. It's something you put in a paper and put a footnote to show how smart you are. But if you're a biblical student who has a mystical view of the Scripture, it's provocative that the Holy Spirit has, because as you know, I have this view that every detail in the Scripture, every letter, every number, every place name, is there by design. Well, why does the Holy Spirit have these ciphers in the text? Well, no one knows. In other words, the people who don't have the Holy Spirit couldn't care less. It's just a historical oddity, right? Most of the people I know that do have the Holy Spirit aren't interested in this sort of trivia anyway. They're off doing something really more substantive. <laughs> but I'm convinced, personally, that they're signposts. Because these are encryptions that the CIA's computers can find, which I don't think are motivated by the Holy Spirit. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Isaiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.